Hey there, welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards with pureandsimplebible.com, and I'm very thankful to have another great Bible discussion, and I'm glad that you're able to listen with me. I've got Jimmy Cading on the program. He's from Oakdale, California, a preacher of the gospel out there, and a personal friend of mine for the past, I don't know, uh, almost 30 years. So if that doesn't make you feel old, Jimmy, I don't know what will. Today we're going to be talking about the epistle of 1 Peter. And if you've got a notebook handy or you enjoy writing in the margins of your Bible, I really encourage you to have paper and pencil ready because this is going to be a good one to help provide structure for an overview of a book. We're going to start with the discussion on individual salvation versus corporate, amongst other things, in the epistle. So let's jump in, shall we? Well, I'm here with Jimmy Cading on Zencaster, and thank you, brother, for joining me online. And, uh, you know, you're in California and I'm in Texas, but we're together on the conference line. So well, thank thanks you. for joining me today. Thank you, Jonathan. It's an honor to be with you today. And uh, I love uh, Bible book overviews. And so we're, we're going to have a conversation about First Peter. And, you know, nobody's seen the notes that, that you've shared with me, but kind of going into it, I knew that we were going to talk about suffering. That's kind of the one I've associated it with, but you're going to bring out some other big picture ideas. And um, so I hope people are willing to either have a notebook handy or um, be willing to kind of look at the big picture, because I think this book is going to be super helpful and this conversation will help unlock some things. Um, maybe we could begin with a date, and that date is on July 18th of the year 64. And I'd like maybe just to ask you, what what happened then that's going to help us appreciate the epistle of First Peter? Well, on July 18th, AD 64, there was a fire that began in the city of Rome. It lasted for several days, destroyed about half of the city, it engulfed the center of Rome, destroying temples and houses, and the citizens of Rome looked for a scapegoat, and they found one in Emperor Nero, mm -hmm. and uh, they knew he had ambitions to renovate much of the city, so they assumed that he had started the fires on purpose, and Nero, in an effort to deflect the blame, uh, began to look for a scapegoat himself, and he shifted that blame onto the Christians, who were the culprits of choice, you might say. Now, you you uh, talked for a little bit about um, kind of how it's been misconstrued based on the Lord's Supper, that they were cannibals, and so it, it seems like they were the natural scapegoat. What what had been misconstrued, and, and how did how did they become the, the perfect scapegoat? Well, Christians, of course— were misunderstood and they were vilified and Christians uh, were already seen as a nuisance when this came along because they they believed in only one God and that was not going to sit well with the Romans who believed right. in uh, many gods including Caesar himself or Nero himself was considered a deity and uh, eating the Lord's Supper, they misunderstood, misrepresented what that meant, and they accused them of cannibalism. And, and so they were accused of, of all kinds of things that were really unfair. They were accused of atheism because they refused to bow to the Roman gods. 
And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Nero actually used Christians, saw them as a perfect target to deflect the blame. Uh-huh. And uh, what was some of the the ways that they, I guess, were punished? How did they take well, the brunt of this? A, a series of uh, state-sponsored persecutions began to arise against the church. Christians faced absolutely horrific times. They they were tortured. Some of them were sewn into the skins of wild beasts. Uh, they were made to crawl around the amphitheater on all fours while the lions and other animals were torn loose or turned loose on them. And uh, some mm. were even crucified, mm. um, which was the the choice of the Romans. And Nero even had Christians coated in tar and uh, tied to post around his garden and set on fire, burned alive to provide lights for his, his parties. And, now, uh, it sounds uh, like as, as horrific as that is, it didn't just stay with Nero, right? It kind of moved on? Oh, yes. In fact, this persecution spread throughout the uh, Roman world, just like wildfire, uh, the news of this barbaric brutality against God's people would spread from city to city, from church to church. But as the news spread, so did a letter, a letter from the Apostle Peter that warned of the impending suffering and really encouragement and instructions on how to endure it. Now, I like how you you bring up that Peter, who's the author of this letter, is actually going to die because of this very persecution, right? That's that's right. According to uh, tradition, uh, traditional reports, Peter, after um, he wrote a second epistle, was crucified in Rome at the order of Nero. Uh, Jesus predicted that Peter would die, and um, when it came time for Peter to be executed, Peter made no demands. He he only made one, actually one request, and that was to be crucified upside down because mm-hmm. he didn't feel worthy to die the same way as Jesus. I know that's just tradition, but it gives me goosebumps just because of who Peter was and how oh, brash right. he had been in the early days and kind of where he is now. Right. Um, what a change now, he's made. Exactly. Um, now, suffering, that had been at the the heart of what I have studied in First Peter, but it's actually a, a, a tri-fold theme, or a, I guess a three-fold theme in suffering and a couple of other things. Can, can you right. uh, maybe start there? How, okay. how should we view this epistle in addition to suffering? Okay, so while suffering is the heart of the book, because he's writing to encourage and instruct Christians on how to endure it, He's going to give them two other um, bits of instruction that will actually allow them to endure. Mm-hmm. And one okay. is going to be uh, the subject of salvation itself, and the other is going to be submission. So uh, really, for memory's sake, uh, all three points of the book uh, are alliterated with salvation, suffering, and submission. But salvation is the foundation to have a proper attitude towards suffering. In fact, when the going gets tough and you're not sure about your salvation, you're going to have problems. Uh, There's Mm. going to be difficulty. So making sure you understand 
what salvation is and the assurance of your salvation will lead you and help you in times of suffering. Now, I like how you break it down um, a little bit into this two aspects of individual and corporate salvation. What, what exactly do you mean by that? Okay. Well, Peter is going to focus on uh, the individual side of salvation as well as the corporate side. And that is, uh, of course, we're saved individually, but we right. are also, when we're saved, we have a relationship with other Christians and we are saved uh-huh. into a family. So there is uh, this individual side that he's going to lay this foundation, but he's going to interweave the concept of our connection in Christ. And that's right. going to be tremendously encouraging to Christians who are suffering as a reminder that they're not suffering alone. Well, maybe we could begin with the the individual side of it. I, I like okay. how you frame this, that salvation is a foundation for a proper attitude towards suffering. What do I do on, as an individual? How do I use this salvation to help me get through the hard times? Well, the individual side comes through, of course, the Word of God, for it's through the Word of God that we're born again. As he says in chapter 1, verses uh, 22 through 23, we're born again by the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. And Peter is going to list three things that follow um, that actually are, like you said, a triad, better known from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, faith, mm-hmm. hope, and love. Um, in, in our Christian walk, these three uh, pillars actually will help us endure. It's actually a theme that is interwoven, not just in 1 Corinthians 13, but throughout the New Testament. And here right. in 1 Peter, Christians are reminded of their salvation by emphasizing all three, faith, hope, and love. Well, maybe we could begin um, with, I know in 1 Corinthians 13, it's faith, hope, and love, but you, you kind of talk first about hope. Why, why is hope so crucial for us to reflect on our salvation? Well, um, I began with hope because that's how Peter begins. In 1 Peter, he's going uh-huh. to emphasize um, hope, and he's going to do it in a just a masterful way. But we know that it's crucial. Hope is crucial, as uh, the Hebrew writer tells us in chapter 6, verse 10, that hope is an anchor for the soul. Mm-hmm. And when troubles come, when the storms of life hit and your hope is sure, it means that you have an anchor that is down, it's steady, it'll hold you steadfast. Uh, hope enables us to endure problems because hope helps us to see beyond our pain and our suffering. And if we believe that our Savior, Jesus, died and lives again, and he's coming back for us, then we can face anything. Even if uh, someone were to kill us, death can't defeat us because we have a living hope. I heard it said uh, recently about hope. You know, hope, hope is the anchor of the soul. And so you see it like in a, a ship in the storm where you, you put the, the anchor out and it kind of holds the ship in place. Um, I heard somebody uh, mention how in ancient times, whenever there was a narrow inlet, maybe maybe it's still kind of this way today, but they'd actually lowered the anchor into the lifeboat or into a little tugboat that mm-hmm. would come up and it would 
then the anchor would, would be in that little lifeboat or tugboat and they would row it out in front of them and then pull the ship through, um, right. by its anchor. And so anchor was actually guiding it through, uh, this treacherous area. And it wasn't, you know, only for holding you in place, but it actually got you through something. And I think that lines up really well with yeah, what you're talking about, this living picture. hope. That's a wonderful picture. It's a draw. And, uh, there are three main ways Peter communicates this this hope or reminds us of this hope, this draw that we have towards um, heaven. And okay. uh, the first thing he does is he he calls his readers pilgrims. Um, hmm. You know, a pilgrim is a visitor, a visitor in a land because this world is not our home. We can have the perspective of a pilgrim. Mm-hmm. Our hope is not in the earthly riches or in sinful pleasures, but um, in in heaven. Now, you've got 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Do you mind if I read that? No, go ahead. Uh, it says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Right. He's, he's actually trying, he's reminding them there that uh, you are sojourners and pilgrims, and because of that, you don't belong in this world, and you shouldn't live like the world. A right, Christian who right. attempts to escape their problems through drugs or alcohol or sinful indulgence—they've forgotten. Mm-hmm. They've forgotten that this world is not our home. Okay, so if uh, we're, we're, I guess, working on hope, right, to right. to help us understand our salvation. We we the one hope we have is that we're pilgrims passing through. What are some other ways that Peter communicates hope? Well, he secondly reminds us of our incorruptible inheritance. In verse uh, three of chapter one, he speaks of an incorruptible inheritance that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And so he reminds us that again. Uh, this world is not our home. We're pilgrims. We're passing through and we're headed to a different place, traveling to heaven. Right. Now you asked this question, but I'm going to steal it from you in your your notes. Uh, uh, You talk about the difference between a living hope and a hope that desires to stay. What is that difference, this longing versus uh, just something that's dormant? Well, you know, I, I thought about this when um, I was considering Paul's words in Philippians chapter 1, verses 23 through 24, a very familiar passage to Christians where you see Paul in this, this dilemma. He has, uh, he has this, this uh, problem that he's facing. He wants to go to heaven and be with God, but he also loves the church here and he's longing to stay here. So he says, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Mm -hmm. And so there's this thought here that a Christian who whose hope is is dormant they may be willing to to depart you know we we are willing to go to heaven but we really desire to stay yeah but a christian who longs for heaven and has a hope that is alive 
a living hope that is, as you said, uh, very appropriately, kind of pulling us and helping us through, uh, that living hope desires to go, but is willing to stay. And that's the attitude Paul seems to have concerning this this world and uh, understanding uh, what his hope is doing for him. Let me let me ask you a question. Um, it's not in the notes. I had a question there, but we kind of already talked about it. How do I transfer my hope from being dormant to being living? Because sometimes I feel like I'm willing to go, but I desire to stay, um, and I'm trying to reconcile: Are my reasons for staying justified, or are they based on a lack of hope? You know, it's like I want to be there as a dad for my kids, as a husband for my wife, sure. as a as a, right. but then there's other things where it's you know I enjoy parts of life here, so maybe how do I separate well, good reasons to stay yeah. versus bad? <laughs> I, I think that's a great question, and uh, you know of course I don't think Paul was you know he didn't necessarily have a death wish, and I don't think Christians should have <laughs> a death wish either. In fact, the Christian life, when lived with the proper perspective, um, is a is the greatest life. And we should enjoy that. We enjoy God has given us gifts in our, in our relationships with our families and, and what a beautiful thing that is, but it's really kind of all a matter of perspective. And especially when you're facing a persecution or a trial or a time of testing, it, it really allows you to understand that this world isn't our, our permanent home. And yeah. we should keep that focus and we should never uh, allow our hope of heaven to die. It should be a living hope. It should be, and it's a living hope because it's based upon and its foundation is from a living savior. And Amen. he he goes to prepare a place and we long to be with him as much as we love our families. And we understand that even our families uh, our children are not going to live forever. Our, our our spouse is not going to live forever. We're all just kind of taking steps day by day towards uh, our eternal destiny. And that's really what we should long for. So I, I would think really to, uh, to answer your question, it's a matter of perspective. Doesn't mean we shouldn't or couldn't appreciate life here, but that we long for eternal life there to be with God. Yeah. Yeah. I know you'll you'll probably bring this up when we talk about uh, corporate salvation, but you just mentioned some things there that kind of put my mind at ease. When my wife and my kids, when my friends, when they're all motivated with the same uh, faith that I'm motivated with, then we know we're all pilgrims together. And that I think that offers me hope instead oh, of despair right. whenever they're not sharing that same faith with me. That's right. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And when we lose a loved one, you know, we have, you know, our hope becomes even more uh, important and heaven becomes sweeter. As we say, it it becomes sweeter all the time, especially when we see loved ones uh, leaving us and then we, we long, we long to be with them. Mm, That's right. Well, brother, let's. Uh, we've taken the, this rabbit hole together, okay. but I think it's right. been worthwhile. I hope people have enjoyed it as much as I did. But if we were to jump back into the structure, we're talking about hope that's going to help us um, with right. the salvation mindset. And and 
you, in this third point, talk about how this living hope reminds us, I guess, that suffering isn't uh, constant. And, and sometimes we get caught up in what suffering moment we're going through, but the hope actually is what helps us get through it. Is that right? That's right. And so besides making the point and reminding us that we're pilgrims traveling through and going to and that we we have an inheritance incorruptible, that we have this heavenly hope. Uh, Peter reminds us that the suffering that we go through is not going to be forever. And that's a great encouragement. In chapter 5 and verse 10, at the end of his book, um, he says, May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Peter mm. always frames suffering as temporary troubles. Right. Um, this reminds me of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 through 18. One of my favorite passages where Paul says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so there's the, the hope there. You, you mentioned Peter and Paul and the way that they frame it, and I just can't help but think that they've gone through so much, and that's the way they look at it. And you know, I've gone through so little in comparison. I've never been stoned, and I've never been uh, shipwrecked and tossed about in the sea. And yet they, they, they speak about it. So I don't want to say casually, but it's almost as though their perfect, their perspective is so heightened based on what they've gone through. And so it's, I guess, good for me to be reminded that these guys actually went through a whole lot and yet they come out on the other side, calling it momentary. Yeah, that's, that's quite, quite something. And uh, if they could say that, certainly we could. And in light of eternity, we recognize that any suffering, no matter how severe it is, it is but for a moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, well, we're we've looked at a, a living hope, and I think that has been made so clear in my mind about why um, hope is essential to me working out salvation on this side of eternity. But you mentioned that there was it was faith, hope, and love and how First right. Peter uses faith, hope, and love to help remind us about our salvation. So what, what what's uh, the second um, attribute we okay. can look at? So the next thing he does that really kind of helps uh, remind them of the salvation that they have is the faith that they have, and it's a tested faith. Of course, we have to have faith to become Christians, but um, our faith uh, is going to sustain us as Christians. Mm -hmm. And in chapter seven, I'm sorry, in chapter one, verse seven, um, he speaks of this genuine faith. He says that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So mm. uh, Peter knew that his readers were going to soon undergo a severe test. And he said that our faith would be tested just as gold is refined in the fire. And um, that's a tremendous picture 
I think, an appropriate picture that he's painting for us. Um, fire tested. And uh, when, when gold is purified, it has to be melted down by fire. And uh, in, in the days when gold was purified by hand, they, they used a big vat to melt the gold and the refiner would keep stirring it over the fire. And as right. the fire heated the gold, it would cause the impurities to rise to the top. And the refiner could easily remove the impurities because of the fire. <clears throat> now that sounds kind of painful. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure right. that it's, it's meant intentionally, but um, you, you, you bring out how that Peter is using this as a picture of what God is intending to do with us. And that is that it may be painful whenever we go through some of the testings of life. That's, that's right. You know, these, when we go through a problem or we go through a trial, it's not pleasant, but we need to kind of view this as an opportunity to help us uh, purify and refine our faith. James would say, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Right. Now, he's, he's, not, he's not trying to get us to, to have a demented view of pain, but he wants us to look at it as an opportunity to grow. And just as this refiner's fire, you know, he repeats this process of, of melting this gold until uh, all of the impurities are, are taken away and he could see himself reflected perfectly in this vat of gold. And the gold mm. was pure when it reflected the refiner. And it's an interesting picture that Peter is making here because this is really what he has in mind. It's a picture of what God is doing with us. When yeah. our faith is tested, impurities can be removed, and we look increasingly more like the refiner, God, Christ. Wow. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I'm thinking about maybe the writer at this point, Peter, and do you think he's the right guy to be advocating this? Because, you know, you're, you're talking about being refined, and it's like this uh, test to get you through but he really he he failed one of the biggest tests one could have, and that would be to deny Jesus, um, even though he said he never would. So, what makes Peter so special that he should be the one writing this? Well, I think Peter actually, you do bring up a good point. It, it does seem kind of strange that Peter, of all people, would would uh, encourage people to be loyal in the face <laughs> of uh, intense pressure, because he did cave. But he, he did learn from this failure. And it's interesting, of course, we understand Peter and know that Peter was the one that denied the Lord three times. But after the Lord's resurrection, when Jesus met Peter on the shores of Galilee, Jesus gave Peter the opportunity to reaffirm his loyalty by confessing his love. And I think in right. doing this, P Jesus was teaching Peter he was teaching him some great things, some things not only about forgiveness, but what the power of love can do. Three times he asked Peter, do you love me more than mm -hmm. these? Mm -hmm. And that must have been a humiliating process for Peter. But the Lord was telling Peter, after all that you've done, I still can use you. I can still work with you, provided that you love me. 
And so Peter, in writing his letter, is going to emphasize a genuine faith that produces a fervent and sincere love because he wants his readers to know that love can help them endure and uh, can help them be used by God in the same way that God used him. Thinking, just uh, trying to organize my mental thoughts if I'm listening to this podcast episode. You've just mentioned the third thing, right? Uh, you mentioned a living hope and enduring faith, and now you've, you've brought up this third point uh, that helps me as an individual uh, consider salvation when I read First Peter, and that is the fervent love. You want to talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, in verse... Um... In verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1, Peter is talking about the tested faith. Um, He says that it may be found uh, to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, let me ask you a question real quick. Just that that scripture intrigues me. It says, "Whom you have not seen, you love." How do you love somebody that you've never seen before? How do we? How is that possible? Well, I think that we can love someone that we haven't seen through faith, but also um, through an understanding of what that person has done and uh why why that person did it for example if mm-hmm. jesus jesus died upon the cross and he did so for me and he loved me that is compelling in fact that's what what love the love of god is it's compelling it's a it's a drawing love it's it's uh, compelling us to um to love him in return. In fact, in 1 John 4, 19, it says, we love him because he first loved us. Uh-huh. And right. I can love right. him even though I have not seen him with my physical eyes, but through the eye of faith, I see him through the mm. witnesses that have revealed to us his life and his death. Love, and even though they didn't see see the Lord with their eyes, they loved him. That's That's the most important thing that's going to matter in the future when, right. when they're facing problems and suffering. And when we are surrounded by the pressures of the enemy, the question is, do you love the Lord? And yeah. we might ask it just as Jesus did. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And mm-hmm. if you love him, then everything else will fall into place. So that's the Amen. individual side of the, um, the, the salvation that Peter is reminding us of. We all have an opportunity and a responsibility to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as part of this foundation that will help us maintain this salvation, um, we have faith, hope, and love that allows us to endure suffering. Right, right. I I hope whenever people listen to this, you know, if they could, I'd love for them to have a notebook and paper because writing some of those things down and then putting the key verses from first Peter that way, the next time you read through it, that's my encouragement to our audiences to mm-hmm. uh, have a little place. Maybe if you, if you do write in your Bible or, or have a notebook where you take notes is put these connections in first Peter. Cause I'm excited about doing that as well as uh, this 
stuff about salvation and these three triads we've looked at, I think is a great way for me to look at the big picture. Um, now, you mentioned in addition to individual, we talked earlier, you kind of already defined it, but there's this idea of corporate salvation, and, and First Peter draws some of that out as well. What, what exactly is corporate salvation, and, and how does Peter help us understand it? Well, we're going to stop it right there, and I want to invite you to come back next week as we consider part two in this very informative and exciting series on an overview of the epistle of First Peter. Now, at the heart of this letter are three great themes, and using the alliteration of S, it's salvation, suffering, and submission. So I may be spoiling next week just a little because we haven't talked about suffering and submission yet. But this week we focused on salvation, specifically the idea of individual salvation built on faith, hope, and love. I hope you were encouraged by that and really inspired by how this book is laid out and structured so well. There's just so many good connections in it. And next week we're going to continue with uh, a brief discussion about corporate salvation and what that means. So if you've never heard that before, then we'll uh, use that concept to continue. And then we'll jump into the other great themes of the book on suffering and submission. So you really need to come back to get the full picture. And until then, you can go to the website. Remember, there's a lot of resources there for you to download and use absolutely free. So check it out. So until next week, always remember, God loves you very much. And I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you. Well, his room's in some trouble.